Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Joe Caltabiano. He is co-founder of Cresco Labs. He is a cannabis entrepreneur. We're going to learn a little bit about his history, about his story, what he's up to today, some changes, and excited to talk about that. Excited to talk about his experience, his long experience in the cannabis industry, insights that he's had, where he sees the industry going, and hopefully some good nuggets, takeaways for folks that are in the cannabis space looking to kind of figure out how they're going to strategically shift, adopt in the new world that we're in, given COVID and uh, all the changes kind of going on in the world. Uh, so I'm excited to have this. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be a, an interesting conversation about some sort of big things in the cannabis space. I always love talking about strategy and where markets are going. So I'm excited for this. With that, Joe, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks, Bruce. I'm excited to be here. And uh, and thanks for the nice intro. It's uh, it's certainly been an incredible ride in the cannabis industry and, and looking forward to things to come. 
And uh, yeah, I'm excited. Thanks. Yeah. Well, so let's give kind of background for us in context and, and give people a little more insight into your history because you've been one of the major you know, kind of forces or, or players in the cannabis space for many years. And so let's talk about that. And then we can kind of talk about what you're doing now and get into some of these topics. So give us the backstory. Tell us about Cresco. Tell us about how you got into that. What was the story? Sure. So my background was in uh, residential mortgage financing. I was a, a loan originator from 2001 all the way through the mortgage collapse and really became one of the top loan originators in the country for many, many years, having done about $2.5 billion in residential financing, was part of a, a relatively small company and helped it grow and expand across the country. And we did that during a time of downturn. Obviously, the yeah. mortgage collapse and the real estate crisis of 08, 09, oddly enough, that's when this mortgage company really grew. And what was interesting about it is the similarities between the mortgage banking industry and cannabis. Mm. Oddly enough, you can draw a lot of parallels. They're both yeah. state-based industries where your regulators are at a state level, unlike a federally chartered bank. You had state requirements and New York operated different than Illinois, than California. And then you saw an industry that went from very highly valued to disrupted by obviously the collapse yeah. and the opportunity to grow during that collapse, only a few companies really focused on that. How I got into cannabis was I had leukemia as I was a kid. I had ALL when I was seven years old and fortunately had a successful outcome, as you yeah. can imagine. But yeah. what that did, I've been very involved in cancer philanthropic activities for many, many years. And I also do a lot of uh, long-term cancer follow-up. But it was really interesting to me to see this evolution from the oncology side. When you would talk to them seven years ago about cannabis, they would tell you, oh, it's snake oil and it really mm -hmm. doesn't do much to, you know, five years ago, the tune kind of changed and they would tell you things like, well, 75% of the people in our waiting room are utilizing cannabis and whether they actually got a prescription or they're doing it on the side to help with nausea and all of these different things. As I sat there and, and realized these doctors and these oncologists that I think very highly of now are almost quietly endorsing cannabis as it sits at a federal illegality you knew that some of that stuff would start to change. So that's when I decided to get into the cannabis space. I went into a couple friends' offices, uh, spoke with them, and that was um, Charlie and, and a couple other guys who were some of the co-founders at Cresco. Mm -hmm. uh, we decided to explore this opportunity. And fortunate enough, we were able to secure some licenses, secure some capital, and really Cresco got formed with really four guys who, who had good business sense but didn't have – we weren't rooted in cannabis. It was something that we learned the, the cannabis business side, but we had a lot of good business sense – having mm -hmm. survived and thrived during a downturn in, in a disrupted market. Yeah, it's interesting. So I'm always curious, people that come into the cannabis space having you know lots of success in other industries, what were the things that you were able to you know, kind of immediately and effectively leverage coming into cannabis? What were the things that didn't transfer maybe so well? And what were the things, you know, kind of the... The known unknowns and the unknown unknowns in terms of getting into cannabis and, and what, what you could take from your previous experience and previous success and what, what didn't. The um, you know, first was putting together a good business plan and then getting capital behind it. So yeah. fortunately, having been in business for a very long time, we were very capable 
of raising some initial capital and and really explaining to people that it was truly at-risk capital. Mm -hmm. We were going to spend a million dollars on this application process and the likelihood of success was slim to none. So, you know, we budgeted for more than we thought it would cost. It ultimately cost that much because you always overrun budgets uh, Mm -hmm. from a startup standpoint. So we secured enough capital. One of the very good things we did very early on was bifurcate the company. And what I mean by that was we split off the operating company from the property company. And why that ultimately came to our advantage was when we won three licenses in Illinois, Mm -hmm. the expectation was best case scenario would win one because there were 21 up for grabs. We ended up winning three and, and actually came in first, second, and third. But by bifurcating the company, we were able to raise capital from people who were comfortable investing in cannabis and being a part of the operating company. But then you also had a lot of people who were interested, but didn't want to get that close to the plant. So they were comfortable deploying into a real estate vehicle where they were going to get a more conservative return, but they had a tangible asset and they weren't quote unquote in the pot business, right? They were just a landlord and they could get some comfort in that. Further, we were able to secure traditional debt on that real estate. So we went out and through our banking relationships, we're able to get a 50% loan to value with market rates on a cannabis facility. That helped us with leverage very early on. So we ended up not needing as much on the equity side. So the things that really translated was we certainly understood the financial needs and the ability to effectuate and get that capital very early on. What we didn't have any experience or what we didn't recognize was the political environment that we were stepping into. It it ultimately became a blessing in Illinois. Illinois started out with a with Governor Quinn, who was a Democrat, who was was pro cannabis and really was a, a pioneer in the Midwestern states to pass a law in 2013. That's really pioneering the industry. It wasn't like California or some of the Western states. This was the middle of the heartland of America, the Midwest. And to have a governor be able to get that through was fantastic. But when you pass initial laws and what I've learned since, you do a lot of trading to get that law through. And what some of the things you had to trade to get that through was to get law enforcement on side, they required that we would fingerprint medical patients very early on in the program. So if you can imagine how stifling that was to tell a cancer patient that, hey, by the way, you've got to go and get fingerprinted to get medicine. That was a very difficult thing to navigate. And I think Governor Quinn thought he would get that bill passed. He would win re-election and then ultimately be able to make some program improvements. Well, unfortunately for us in the industry, he lost the election to a conservative governor, Bruce Rauner, who really didn't do anything to help the program. He really wasn't an advocate for yeah. cannabis until his last couple days when he realized he was, you know, he needed some Hail Marys to try to win the election. But you had this very stagnant program where we were adding so few, maybe 500 patients a month for a year or two years, unlike a lot of these other markets that got off to a very robust start. What that made us do at Cresco was focus on our core business, really develop brands, really understand how we could outperform our expected market share and Mm -hmm. create a viable business. We didn't have extra capital to go and, and deploy into South America or other kind of hope and dream type markets, we really laser focused on Illinois, which got us to know the business very well, got us to understand the customer very well. And then we could take that and scale it as the program started to improve and as other opportunities came our way. Yeah. 
I'm curious on the um, corporate structure on the real estate and how you kind of set that up for the investment side. Was that brilliant masterminding strategy or was that just kind of, I guess, how much of that was kind of turned out to be lucky in terms of how you set it up and how much of that was really having, you know, looked at how this market was set up, what the issues were going to be with investors, creating these two entities that were going to address their kind of concerns and needs. Give me some insights into It was a little of both. You know, having come from the real estate and finance background, I knew you would not get debt on a cannabis operating yeah. business. Like I, I recognize with with 100% certainty that no one is going to lend money to a de novo or startup company in the cannabis space that actually grew the plant. And then having some very early on conversations and was neat was you were able to open up a lot of doors when you were talking to people about cannabis. Mm-hmm. Everyone would sit down and talk to you But then they would say, you know what, I take in money from XYZ company, so I can't be that close to cannabis because, again, we're talking 2013, 2014, 2015, different time than today. Not everybody, you know, wanted to be even associated with it. But people got comfortable when you started to talk about the real estate. You would pay an outsized rent. It would be an outsized return. And the real estate had a dividend associated with it. So much like... Everyone has different investing appetites. What we realized very quickly was you have people who want to hit that home run or think that cannabis is going to be the next big thing, and they want to be equity partners and look for that big upsize gain. And then you have a lot of people who say, well, I've been investing in Walgreens and they pay their rent on time and I get X yield on my money there. I'm willing to take a risk, but I still like the fact of owning a tangible asset. So I'll invest in the real estate. So it was well thought out. It worked out better than we ever expected because we were actually able to get debt on the real estate as well. So it it really was a self-fulfilling prophecy, but it, it did, it was thoughtful very early on. We knew that that was a um, a way to at least attempt it. It ended up working out better because we were able to secure debt in a very traditional format on the real estate. Yeah. Uh, I can see how it served you well, you know, as things kind of develop. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, sort of 2019. You know, we had some interesting, you know, events and we saw some interesting activities. You know, cannabis market beginning of 2019, you know, very strong. And then uh, towards the end of 19, we had a real kind of, I don't know how you want to characterize it, uh, correction, revaluation, you know, in the kind of the capital markets that I think really, my impression really kind of changed or at least impacted the way people were looking at, you know, finding capital for uh, cannabis businesses. Give us your kind of take on how you saw 2019 play out and how we kind of finished 2019 from a the capitalization of businesses, you know, access to capital for cannabis businesses. What was the story or, or give us kind of paint the picture for us before we kind of talk about what's happening in 2020? Sure. And I'll even take it back to December of 2018. So Crestor sure. went public in the first week of December of 2018. Yeah. And prior to that, we were behind GTI, we were behind Harvest, we were behind Cureleaf, we were behind Acreage. They had all raised money right in front of us. Mm-hmm. And the market was very robust. And, you know, you were getting your book filled very well, very early, and, and really at the terms that, that you were dictating. Well, we went out on our roadshow, and right when we went out, some of those stocks started trading, and they traded down significantly. It was the first yeah. time you saw anybody especially a U.S. operator, trade down post-open. And that changed the whole dynamic while we were mid-flight, mid so to speak. When yeah. we landed in London to meet with some of the bigger funds over in London, we got off the plane and people were watching their first investment that they got the, the PM or the, the managing director of a fund to participate in being down 40 50% on the open 
that wasn't a great thing when you were telling a very similar story yeah. that we're a multi-state canvas operator, we're focused on brands, et cetera, et cetera. And why was that happening? I mean, give us some insights on why, like what was causing that or what's your either in reality or perception in the market that was, was causing those stocks to trade down at post, post-IPO? Well, I think, you know, you had a lot of them got upsized mid-round. So they went out, and what I mean by that is they went out to raise 50 million or 100 million and they got so much interest that they ended up taking 200, 300 million dollars or, or four times what they expected. And then what happens is it puts so much pressure on the stock to open that yeah. some of those bigger investors, they get out right away. So you've got this huge downward pressure and you didn't have any secondary buyers. So what they did was they put the company in a position rather than sitting still and having a secondary market that had a ton of demand, they took all that secondary market activity and push it into the RTO round, then there was no buyer after the fact. So, you know, hindsight's 2020, obviously we all know that, but if they would have left a little bit more, you probably would have had a very different open and and it might've actually set the table for very different outcome as we went into 2019. But nonetheless, it made us recognize how volatile this was. And, you know, we got great advice from, from financial advisors and of, hey, get the RTO done. I know you're not going to get the valuation you think you deserve, but get the RTO done, focus on business, and then you know we can always revisit some of these things at a later date. And that was great advice that we got from Canaccord yeah. very early on. And we were able to get our RTO done in a difficult time. You know, We were kind of one of the last big MSOs to, to make it through, especially in that December. Yeah. So then you fast forward into 2019, and there was a lot of hopes that there would be new capital coming into the space and you would see new faces and you would hear new big players and big funds who were running and doing due diligence on a bunch of deals. But what you didn't see was a lot of that materialize. We didn't get any breaks on the federal side in the United States as far as SAFE Act or States Act. And you had a lot of people sitting there waiting and the rush of new capital didn't come in. So now you had a limited capital base that had been, you know, some, they've had plenty of winners, plenty of losers, but Mm -hmm. all in all, they were still in a positive situation. That was all the while, while the Canadian LPs were starting to show signs of weakness. And you were starting to see that some of the fundamental investment strategies there of funded capacity or international expansion might not be what they thought or portrayed some of those things to be. So with that, it created these limited pool of investors now are starting to have real disruption in their portfolio in a totally different market, which is Canada and the international markets, but it trickled into the U.S. markets. So the U.S. operators weren't given the same level of runway or ability to, to sit there and execute on their plan, everything got pushed forward and it was, hey, I know you told us you were going to hit these numbers and you were going to get these things open, but there was such little amount of tolerance from the investment community if your local municipality didn't allow you to get open in time or you had some disruptions. And I think you asked early on what what I didn't know about the space, the number of challenges and number of hurdles that come out of absolutely nowhere in this (laughs) industry is staggering. And if you're not in the problem solving world, you can't be in the cannabis space because it is unbelievable the amount of disruption that occurs and somehow it all happens at the same time. So those are some of the things that that I think you address. But now as 2019 pressed forward, you had investors who were trying to balance 
like, hey, we're getting killed up here and my initial investment in some of these U.S. operators was good. I can take some of that money off the table to offset some of these losses. And that started to get exacerbated was the the 2019 disruption in Canada really trickled into the U.S. operators and we were shifting constantly to, to, to stay up with what the investment community wanted to see. And gone was the, hey, how many states are you in? Where have you planted a flag? It got back to you better start executing in your core markets because we need to see real progress and cash flow positive positioning for us to continue to, to fund these operations. Yeah. Yeah. It just feels like a, I'll call it a classic situation. I don't know how classic it is, but you know, one of those situations where kind of the, the demands from the investor side and sort of driving, you know, changing priorities on the operational side in terms of, hey, look, we, we want to incent or we want to, you know, we're going to fund growth focused, you know, market expansion kind of businesses and all of a sudden switch to, well, no, we need, you know, operational capabilities and financial stability or, you know, operational excellence. And that's hard. It's hard for companies to make those switches. And some of them can do it well, others can't, and you can kind of get caught flat footed. Do you see this as kind of the tail wagging the dog on some of this? Or what's your, what's your kind of analysis on how the capital markets are kind of affecting or driving the industry overall? Yeah, you know, I mean, we saw just so many changes for having Cresco was public, you know, again, from December of 2018. We've seen different strategies by the investment community. First, it was funded capacity. Mm -hmm. Then it was how many states are you in? And now it's, you know, back to basics of EBITDA and cash flow positive and and free Mm -hmm. cash flow. So you saw all of that in a very short period of time. So investment goals changing very quickly and, and companies having to pivot around that. I think now it is where it should be, which is back to basics, build a company, execute on your plan, increase yeah. your top line revenue, but all the while focusing on your bottom line. And how do you get to a point that you're a stable company and then reinvesting your profits into your business, not relying on the next funding round. And if the funding round becomes available, that's great, but you raise money when you want to, not because you need to. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think that was this big disconnect that has since been been really addressed. And unfortunately, the music stopped for a lot of the operators out there who in other industries would have been fine because the capital would have kept coming. But in this space, the capital dried up and, and they're left. Um, again, that money's gone. And now you're you didn't have enough time to execute on your long-term vision for your company. And then you have to make some drastic changes. And whether that's oppressive debt structures yeah. with, with some pretty draconian terms, or it's selling assets, or it's downsizing your company, all of those things start to get addressed. Yeah. Well, and now, so we're in 2020 and, you know, we have this kind of a whole bunch of things happening. You know, we've got, uh, you know, COVID-19, the big disruption starting in March. Obviously, we've got other kind of social issues going on here with, you know, the issues around race and social justice. You know, those are all kind of impacting things. How is this impacting the business? I mean, cannabis was declared a central service. So at some level, you're kind of, we're quote unquote still in business, but, you know, still horribly disruptive. I mean, what are you seeing in terms of companies that are faring well right now, either because of what they do or how they do it, or because of their financial setup? What, what's kind of, give me your kind of analysis of how COVID's impacting things and, and the situation we're in now. It's not funny, that's not the right word to use, but, you know, when I stepped down from Cresco back in March, you know, there was an early interview about how I thought COVID would disrupt cannabis, and I was 100% wrong. Um, you know, I thought it would be a, a supply chain disruption, yeah. um, more so than anything with 
you know, maybe your vape pens were going to take longer or whatever you made internationally or products you relied on yeah. internationally. Clearly, I couldn't have been more incorrect with some of my early thoughts on that. So, you know, while I stand corrected, you saw this rapid response from a lot of the players, you know, the larger MSOs, they were able to remain open. They mm -hmm. were able to communicate a strategy to the local municipalities, the state legislatures, the governors of we are an essential business. And they did a great job lobbying for that outside mm -hmm. of, you know, Massachusetts, where you obviously had kind of a, yeah. they went out on a limb and, and shut it down. But outside of that, you really had a positive outcome of solidifying cannabis as an essential business and this opportunity for it to prove itself. And fortunately, the operators have done a very, very good job of doing that. You didn't hear about breakout cases. You, they took it very seriously, which was great to see. And it shows the, the maturation of the industry that it, it's not the wild, wild west. You know, they addressed it the same way many banks did and many stores did and many of their operations. What it has put pressure on is the throughput of a store. So on the retail side, you know, obviously it's basket size. It's, mm -hmm. you know, how many people can you get through the store? That's really the measurement of your revenue because it is a product that is in demand. But if yeah. you're reducing the number of people that can go through the store on a daily basis, how do you make up that revenue? Obviously, you can hope that people buy more and that doesn't disrupt mm -hmm. future cash flows, but it definitely disrupts the short-term revenue as you get your wits beneath you of how do you kind of maintain what you had before. It's very difficult to grow during this time. So I think it's important that, that companies recognize that status quo is a, is a great accomplishment. Not having a downturn is a great accomplishment. Hopefully your business can survive while you're in kind of this steady state and can't focus on getting more people through the door because ultimately that's what a, a new industry needs to focus on. But kind of not going backwards is the first piece. And you saw companies do a really good job of that. I think what comes from it is increased investment into technology, increased mm -hmm. investment into online ordering, web development, customer interface, user interface of how do I feel comfortable making those orders online and getting into a, ultimately what becomes a better system of fulfillment where somebody places the order somewhere, whether it's in a different facility online on the phone, and then they come and pick it up. Ultimately, that does yield to faster throughput when you can get that same number of people through the door and you can open up and have more people in the store at any given time. But right now, it's it's kind of a steady state goal. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of companies are doing it. You're also going to see changes in production methodology. I think what COVID will ultimately do for cannabis is advance it five years. Yeah, interesting. You're going to see more automation on the cultivation, manufacturing, and fulfillment side as well as companies recognize the need. It's no longer a want to move to automation. It's a requirement yeah. because you can't have your whole supply chain revolving around how many people can do some manual task every day. You need to move to the next generation. So I think as a whole, COVID was incredibly disruptive, but mm -hmm. you saw a lot of people make positive steps for their business to get in a better position, which will ultimately help them weather future storms. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how it's it is this force of change and and seeing uh, you know whether you're talking about the retailer side need to kind of completely rethink the relationship with the customer and yeah using these kind of online ordering and delivery and really kind of 
disrupting the whole kind of dispensary context. And then, yeah, on the on production side, you know, in terms of the automating technology, you know, how do I have fewer people involved that have, you know, less complexities in terms of being able to manage from a safety point of view and then ultimately kind of quality and consistency. You know, for a company that's kind of came into 2020, I guess looking at the financial kind of structure side of things, a lot of companies are still in this highly leveraged situation, or at least they were coming into 2020, highly leveraged situation, hoping to get more capital to fund growth and expansion. What's the challenge now for those folks? I mean, this market is now in a, hey, let's maintain the level we're at. We're not going to be growing a whole lot the next certainly several months, maybe a couple of quarters here. But what kind of pressure does that put on companies and what are their options now, given the state of the world? Sure. I think what it will do, first and foremost, is make the companies focus on their core businesses, as was somewhat of the war cry at the end of 2019 was, hey, we're going to focus on these core states that are coming online, whether it's Pennsylvania, Illinois, you know, Maryland, Florida, whatever it is, focus on some of these core states and really execute on our plan there. So that's first and foremost. So for the industry, I think that's a big positive. What you will see is, is obviously there's been a reduction in the M&A that has gone on. A, it's very hard to do due diligence right now when you can't have your teams traveling around the country and visiting sites and you're doing things more remotely. It's a little more difficult and time consuming to do kind of a virtual M&A transaction. Mm -hmm. So it's made these companies focus on their core business and hopefully get them to a point where they're in a, a stronger position when things do get back to kind of a new normal. What you're also seeing is the companies that couldn't turn that corner are now in a desperate situation. They've now recognized that they either don't have enough cash to go forward and they need to find a suitor, sell some assets, or they risk insolvency. And you know, you're seeing kind of bankruptcy protections, whether it's in the Canadian domiciled in Canada or even mm-hmm. US companies are starting to to explore some of those things of bankruptcy protection and and protection from creditors. I don't know how some of those survive if they don't take a very real look at where they're at, what they need to do and really go out and find a partner or someone to help them through this time because you can have the best ideas in the world, but right now it's going to be very difficult for companies that aren't cash flow positive or have a clear pathway towards cash flow positivity mm-hmm. to get new capital. It's going to be very, very difficult. Just like even the big MSOs or the, the very solid companies are at grips with somebody saying, hey, well, XYZ company that's been around for 100 years is down 30%. I can just invest in that rather than take mm-hmm. a flyer on you and your new industry and your new business. So the risk profile, as you get further down the food chain, it gets very difficult to get investors to participate. And I think you're going to see a lot of consolidation. I think you're going to see a lot of forced marriages that inevitably probably won't work out great for both parties. But yeah. I think you're going to see some some forced marriages much like what you saw when Colorado required people to be vertical. Uh, Very early on in the industry, you had somebody who focused solely on retail having to match up with somebody who focused solely on cultivation. They kind of mashed those together into some forced marriages, and that caused a lot of disruption to one party or another, and that takes away from executing on the plan. So I think you're going to see some mergers that might not be the most well thought out, but they are survival tactics for some of the, the littler 
or companies that haven't gotten uh, stable footing. And then the, the big ones, I think they focus on their business, they get in a stronger position, and then they will be able to access some capital in relatively near term. I think what I do know about the capital markets is there's a fairly short memory. They do look, <laughs> yeah. they're in the capital markets to push the envelope, to deploy yeah. capital, and they need to do that. That's how the machine works. So they will look at these companies differently, you know, six months later or three months later and, and maybe take another view at uh, deploying capital into them. Yeah. And if you're a company that's, you know, operating profitably, you know, has focused on its core business well, is, you know, successful in this kind of context and potentially even sitting on some cash, you know, maybe did a round and, you know, or, or have some operating profits that they can invest. I mean, is this a shopping spree's time? Is this a, an opportunity to go out and potentially, you know, acquire some companies at a distressed price? or an assets at distressed prices? Yeah, so my focus is solely on that, is yeah. if you have a balance sheet and if you have capital, and whether you're a fund, whether you're an operating company, in my opinion, now is the time to execute on M&A. And yeah. if you have that dry powder, that cash that companies need so much, tax bills are coming due, yeah. you know, renewing registrations to your state or local municipality, all of those things are coming up. Some of these companies can't survive. So if you have capital, there is a, a really good reset on valuations right now. And you can come in and and either absorb some of these companies or maybe get an extra board seat or do some different things if you're willing to deploy capital right now. That's how, when I flash back to the mortgage crisis, we grew exponentially, having gone yeah. from probably 300 employees to 1,500 employees over that time frame where we went and scooped up the, the revenue-generating side of some of the, the companies that weren't successful in the mortgage space. We didn't take on all of their infrastructure and all of their costs and all of their SG&A. We really went and, and tried to find the revenue-generating side and bring it under our platform because you had this ability to scale. So I think that's what companies should be looking at is how do we go out and maximize our dollars through M&A or through direct lending or through any of these other vehicles because a lot of companies have to make some tough decisions in the very near term. And furthering yeah. on that, the companies that are on stable footing can access capital still. You know, whether it's through sale leaseback, whether it's through some type of credit facility, make no mistake, there is still a significant amount of money sitting on the sidelines that are very interested, but they're not investing unless your house is in order. Yeah, yeah, it seems to be uh, kind of the uh, the rule of thumb right now is like you you have to be you have to have a sustainable business, you know, well structured, operating profitably, or at least um, you know a very quick to profitability if need be kind of model to be able to both survive and uh, and get the money that you need and, and great opportunities. I mean, I think that's the interesting kind of, you know, part of this is there are some really interesting opportunities, both market and company and acquisitions. How do you see the rest of 2020 playing out? I mean, just paint us a little bit of a picture of how you're kind of anticipating, you know, the cannabis market to kind of Q3, Q4, you know, what does this, what does this look like, industry look like? Yeah, I think everybody's open for transactions. So, you know, it's funny, anecdotally, like when we were doing M&A a year ago, you would call somebody and they would say, yeah, let me get a data room together for you. And it would take a week for them to compile you know, their documents into a data room. I think every company under the sun has a data room set up. Um, they're either a buyer or a seller right now. So it's, you can just see that it's, it's a different time. I think you're going to see a significant amount of consolidation. I think you're going to see, again, some forced marriages, some companies that just they're not going to make it on their own. So they're going to have to make some decisions. I think you're going to see some of the bigger MSOs continue to 
grow and, and acquire other tuck-in assets or even potentially some bigger assets. I think you're also going to see a lot of movement on a legislative side. I think Arizona will go adult use. I think a lot of the other states will revisit some of their limited license frameworks because they're going to be in such desperate need for tax revenue that you're going to see maybe some of the more limited licenses where they had 20 or 50 or 100 licenses. You see the regulators or legislators start to look to expand that and open up some of those markets. You've got markets like Oklahoma, which isn't one that I'm intimately familiar with, but there is so many licenses there and it, it's proven the theory like they've brought in a lot of tax revenue in a medical market. So, you know, I think a lot of states will look at adding more licenses or expanding programs, giving more access to people, both for access to a license is one thing, but also access to the product, whether it's in a medical or recreational form. I think you're going to see a lot of that because these these cities and towns and states recognize they need jobs and they need tax yeah. revenue. And cannabis is a phenomenal place for them to allow it. It doesn't take away from other things. It really takes away from the black market or the illicit market exactly, and brings it into the legal market where it's taxed and people get jobs and W-2s and tax withholdings and all of those things that help a economy heal itself. So I think yeah. you're going to see a lot of that too, which unfortunately creates more competition for everybody. But I think that's also a benefit because you continue to see the cream rise to the top and the people who are focused on execution within this business and really improving the state of the cannabis industry win. I think they ultimately have a much more clear path to success as some of the operators who aren't as focused on long-term success and are in this for a quick buck, they go by the wayside. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's going to be an interesting shakeout. Joe, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you're doing now, what's the best way to get that information? Yeah, so email is the best way to reach me. It's uh, joeclones at gmail.com, J-O-E-C, L-O-A-N-S at gmail.com. And I really enjoyed this, Bruce. Thank you for having me on and I look forward to talking again soon. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. I'll make sure that the email is in the show notes so people can click through and get that. Yeah, great conversation. I really think, you know, fascinating times. You know, we are, we're going to see a lot of changes. We'll do a follow-up episode in a couple of months and see see how many of these predictions are right. But, you know, it it will be fun to see how this plays out. And I think it's, uh, you know, cannabis is well positioned to be a really influential industry uh, for the overall economy. So, you know, I think there's opportunity here. But I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Bruce. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.